Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19, beginning at verse 29. If you didn't bring your Bible or you don't have it on your phone, we have it in the bulletin, the text today we're looking at as we journey through the book of Genesis. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ammai. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and stayed in Gira. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gira, sent and took Sarah. <laughs> but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and said to him, Indeed you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife. For he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. What did you have in view that you have done this thing? Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, 
when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, welcome to Generations Church, the church that tackles passages most preachers want to jump over and skip. Every verse in the Bible is not something you're supposed to obey, but every verse is there for something to learn something from. And there's some lessons here. We looked at chapter 19 last week, which was the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where two angels went to the wicked cities to investigate Lot invited them. He is Abraham's nephew. So he persuaded them to come stay with him because he knew how wicked the place was. He lived there, but he wouldn't move. And while there, the men of the city from every neighborhood and men of every age surrounded the house wanting to gang rape the guests. And of course, the guests struck them blind and they still tried to get in the house to get at them wicked place. And so the angels got Lot and his family out of there. Others that Lot warned wouldn't listen to him, wouldn't take him seriously. And they got out of Dodge. The angels told him to go into the mountains. And Lot says, no, let me go to Zoar. It's a little place. It's not wicked like this. Can I go there? I'm afraid to go to the mountains. And in our text today, he winds up going to the mountains. He's afraid in Zoar. Now, when most preachers preach from chapter 19, they preach about homosexuality. I'm not going to do that today, but I'm not going to dodge it either. Um, we try not to skip any topic here at the church, but we also try not to harp on things and just become, you know, known for harping on stuff. But in 2003, we did two teachings on homosexuality very thoroughly. You can find this on our website, generationspeople.org. Go to our archives, and in the search window, uh, enter truth about Jesus and homosexuality, and such were some of you. Very thorough. I mean, to the point of being PG-19. And in 2010, we did a thorough job and even produced a brochure that went with a sermon. If you'd like the notes from that, I can direct you to, for that but it's also available to hear online called Can a Person Be Gay and Be a Christian? And then when same-sex marriage became uh, legislated by the Supreme Court, uh, Elder Greg Harrell spoke on it on June 28th of 2015, addressing marriage. That same day, Marietta Harrell delivered a powerful uh, spoken word piece, a poem almost, 
called This Doesn't Change a Thing. And the gist of the poem is the Great Commission still stands, and marriage still stands, and we still have a job to do to love sinful people because he loves us, right? And brings us into a relationship with himself. So if you don't mind, I'm going to let those stand as addressing this subject and move on to the rest of the story. we got a lot of ground to cover. There's, you know, like 50 chapters in this book. So Lot leaves Zoar and dwells in the mountains because he was afraid in Zoar. He and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. So they thought everybody was dead. You know, their world had come to an end, but they didn't know it wasn't worldwide. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Now, why would a daughter even think this? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I think, verse 23 says, evil company corrupts good habits. And as parents, we can't expect our children to follow everything we groom them to do for the rest of their life. That's why you need a church community to groom them in so that when your kid gets to be a teenager and they think you're a moron, they've got plenty of other morons around to help reinforce your wisdom. And so these girls had been influenced by the neighborhood that Lot raised them in. They just were. So, you know, compared to gang rape, this didn't seem so bad, sleeping with daddy. So they're going to get him drunk. Now, also notice, if you're fleeing town because destruction is coming, you're going to grab essential things. Where did they get this much wine to get their father so drunk and probably themselves over the course of two nights to do this? This family was certainly dysfunctional. So they made him drink wine, and the first night, the firstborn lay with him, and then the second night, she persuaded her younger sister to lay with him to preserve the lineage of their father. Well, guess what? They had two boys. Now, what good is that going to do? Adam and Steve can't conceive. So I I just point that out. Um, And also, these books were written... Uh, by Abraham while Israel is journeying through the wilderness. And, of course, they spent 40 years in, the, in a you know, very small area. And Moses had days and days and days of visitation with God when he, he wrote these books. And so these people are journeying through this land, and they're learning about the origins of the land that they're going to conquer. And these two boys, whose dad was their grandpa, whose sisters were their Uh, moms, (laughs) that's messed up, who were one another's half-brother and also one another's cousins. Reminds me of that country song, he's his own grandpa. Could have been from Arkansas. No, sorry. (laughs) My dad's family is from Arkansas, where the family trees don't fork much, but anyway. Um, So the firstborn son was named Moab, the father of the Moabites, and the second-born son uh, was named Ben-Ami, the father of the Ammonites. 
And so as Israel goes through the promised land, these two people groups throughout their history caused them problems. The Moabites had a king named Barak. And Barak hired a prophet named Balaam to curse them. Because Balaam was a prophet known in that area to pronounce things that come to pass. And he was making a living at it. Not like some of today's prophets. We're going to leave that alone. We're going to move, moving forward. So Balaam went through a great ordeal, with even to the point of a donkey prophesying to him on the, on the journey. Uh, and God would not let him speak ill of Israel. He just proclaimed good. He was yelled at by the king. Hey, you're not doing what I'm paying you to do. How dare you? And an argument could be said uh, that part of his prophecy was messianic. I mean, amazing things were coming out of his mouth. This is a Moabite king wanting to curse the children of Israel, and he couldn't do it. And so the Torah says that Balaam went home. Well, the next story, the next chapter begins with the Moabite king sending in his wild women and seducing the Israelite men. And of course, judgment came. The book of Revelation says Balaam told him to do that. So basically, if you put two and two together, read the story and then read what Revelation says, he obviously said something like this, Balak, I cannot curse them. But if you want them cursed, you can put them at odds with their God. Well, how do I do that? Send in the women. The king did. So uh, sexual perverseness, fornication, which basically is the word that covers all forms of sexual activity outside the bonds of holy matrimony between a husband and wife, all that other stuff, I don't care what they call it, it's fornication. It's the big basket, like the word fruit, is a big basket that holds fruit, and in the fruit are bananas and oranges and grapefruits and pineapples. So there's all different names for sexual deviation and sin, but it's all fornication and it's all forbidden, and Jesus gave commands against it in Revelation. And so we have this story here as a warning to them. And, you know, by experience, they experience judgment from God for them falling into fornication. And yet, God's grace and providence is at work through this scenario. Because there was a Moabite woman named Ruth who told her mother-in-law when her Jewish husband died, your God shall be my God and your people shall be my people. And she wound up marrying Boaz and became the grandmother of David. And she is listed in the family tree of Jesus, a Moabite. Don't you love our Redeemer? He can pull us out of the fire. He can pull us out of the mud, out of the miry clay, out of the pit, and make us part of his plan.
So let's go to chapter 20. Abram journeyed from there to the south. So he's living for quite a while under the Tirbinth trees. His camp is there in Hebron, the trees of Mamre, and he journeys south to Gerar. Why did he go there? I'm not sure, but I suspect the economy of his area was impacted by the judgment on the cities in the plain. I mean, their agriculture got wiped out. I mean, not only the cities, but all forms of uh, recovering that place is done. And so maybe he moved somewhere else where there could be some more trade. I don't know. But he moved to Gerar, which is Philistine territory. All right? And he stayed in Gerar. Verse 2, Abram said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So it's customary for kings at that time to add to their collection of wives from people that come through their territory. Now keep in mind, this woman's 90 years old. She's been promised a child. There's got to be some kind of miracle that has happened in her body. For Abraham to believe his life is in danger because of her beauty. You know, kill the husband and snatch the wife. Abimelech is not a name, it's a title. Like Pharaoh or emperor or prime minister, it means father king. Ab or Abba is father or daddy. So Abimelech put them together, it means father king. Now here's what's interesting. Uh, You know how sometimes our weaknesses are passed down to our kids? Years later, Isaac did the same thing with his wife to an Abimelech. So the giants we conquer, we conquer so our kids don't succumb to them. Amen. So God comes to Abimelech in a night and says, you're a dead man. You have taken in someone's wife. And uh, it's not good. So he had not come nearer, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? So he must have heard about the slaying of the unrighteous nation, the city kingdoms, Sodom and Gomorrah. He must have heard about that and knew they were wicked. So here he thinks he's a righteous thing, and you know, you're going to wipe us out too? I didn't know she was his wife. In the integrity of my heart, I took her into my harem. And I've not touched her. God says, I know you did it in the integrity of your heart. Give her back. Her husband's a prophet. What is God thinking calling Abraham a prophet? Well, God knows the end from the beginning. He sees us as finished in his work. He declares us to be righteous even though we've got all sorts of issues and problems. If you're here today beating yourself up for your past or your present, God's seen past that through the lens of the gospel. And so it happens. He uh, prays for him, and he's healed. His wives are healed, and everybody else in his kingdom that was having physical problems were healed. And he said, why did you do this? You know? Why did you do this, Abraham? I mean, he rebukes him. Why have you done this? Abraham gets a strong rebuking. Uh, Why have you brought this sin on me? 
This should not have been done. This is evil. This is wicked. Here's a guy who's no doubt a womanizer calling Abraham wicked. So this is, you know, maybe he has had husbands killed for their wives. I'm not sure. But Abraham is getting a rebuking, and he knows he's right, and he has to take it. And uh, so here's his reasoning in verse 11. I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place. And they will kill me on account of my wife. So apparently, they feared God more than he did. Now, here's a man that was promised a miracle son. A series of miracles has happened in his life over the last 25 years. And yet, like we do, he leaks. He forgets. Fear gets a hold of him. And he he yields to his old ways. He had agreed with her when they first got married that this is what they would do if they traveled. Now, you ready for a shocker? Verse 12, she truly is my sister. What? She's the daughter of my father and not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So Jewish historian Eben Betrick says that Terah, Abraham's father, first married Yonah, with whom they had Abraham, or Abram. God changed his name to Abraham. Afterwards, he married Tehavida, who bore him Sarah. So she was his half-sister. Now, some people will try to say, well, maybe they adopted her. Or maybe Tehavita had a child from a previous relationship. Not what the historian said. So she was his half-sister, and he married her. Yet God in his grace and in his love pursued this man whose life was messed up, and God is going to send the Messiah for the world through them. Why? To demonstrate his nature. He can take an expletive and make a masterpiece. He said, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say he is my brother. So Abimelech showers him with gifts. Now, they're not worthy. Showers them with gifts, sheep, oxen, male, and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. Now, if you read earlier in this book, he did the same thing in Egypt with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gets a visitation from God of judgment. He told Pharaoh, yeah, she's my sister. But he didn't get this information. She was his sister. So when we read the story of that part, Abraham looked like a big liar, Now let's look at it again. Was he lying? Well, you can argue with someone else about that. He was uncovering his wife. He was not manning up. It's beyond just lying. This is wickedness. And God calls, this is the first use of the word prophet in the Bible. God calls him a prophet. 
I mean, if it was us, we'd say, oops, I made a covenant with the wrong guy. But no, God doesn't have plan B. He's going to stay on your case till you yield to him. Surrender to him. And Abraham never did this again. So he blesses them with his livestock and with servants. You know, in Egypt, they got blessed with male servants and female servants, one of whom was Hagar. That's a whole other story of problems that came. And he told Sarah, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you, before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So the king greatly, at great expense, humiliated himself because they had humiliated him to assure them he had done no wrong. This is 25 pounds of silver. This is the bride price, according to their mythology, of a goddess. When a god in mythology would marry a goddess, the bride price was a thousand pieces of silver. So they left there richer than they were when they came. Now, were they worthy? No, they should have been stripped of everything they owned and kicked out of Dodge. They should have been spanked royally, yet God in his mercy and his grace, has a plan. They're going to need these blessings because they are going to father the Israelite nation through whom is going to come Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, so Abram prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For well, the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. End of story. No. Uh, let's continue. Go to the next chapter. It wasn't written in chapters. We put them there years ago. Humans did to help us find stories quicker. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and he did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, he's 100 and she's 90, Isaac, or Isaac, which means laughter. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. What in the world is God thinking? Jesus told a parable of someone that was forgiven a small debt and someone that was forgiven a greater debt or greater offense. And he said, who will love the forgiver? This is my version. Who will love the one forgiving more? And the ones here in the parable, well, the one that was forgiven much will love more. Why was the Apostle Paul 
the most impactful of the New Testament apostles of all of them. He'd been forgiven more. I mean, Peter just denied the Lord, but Paul persecuted them, and the Lord took it personally. Murder, holding coats for people. Here, I'll take that for you. Go ahead and throw some rocks. Here, you need to get a better uh, movement on that arm there. Here, give me that, give me that jacket. That's the kind of stuff he was doing. God forgave him, restored him, and his love for God. He got his opportunity to suffer, but he never recanted. He never backed down. He never gave up. That's what restoration would do to you. So this laughter they had was beyond just the ridiculous thought of old people having a baby, of old people enjoying intimacy to the, to the level of having conceived. But they're not worthy. On the tail end of this horrible story, I mean, a kingdom could have been destroyed because of their sin. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject, God's perfect plan through imperfect people. Now, the secular world does not understand this. You know, if you're going to be vetted for a certain position, they're going to check your oil and say, you're not qualified. But with God and the operation of grace, you're the perfect candidate. Have you read that humorous piece where a, a uh, public relations department did a personality review of the 12 apostles and they came back a report with why none of them were qualified except one? Peter's too impetuous. John's just self-centered and mama's boy. Um, Matthew's money hungry, you know, all that stuff. Only one of them do we recommend that you hire, and his name is Judas Iscariot. <laughs> but even he could have been restored, but he took matters into his own hands and ended his earthly life. God's perfect plan through imperfect people. God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Are we his instruments? Does he use us? Right? So you're walking down the beach, and you have a straight stick. It's easy to draw a straight line, right? But if you have a crooked stick, you can draw a straight line. And in God's perfect plan, he takes imperfect people and uses them to demonstrate his grace. Now, some people falsely believe that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New. The God of the Old Testament is harsh. But here we have God in the... In the Old Testament, demonstrating restoration, redemption, his purposes. He made a covenant and he is not backing down because he's not a liar. You cannot call a liar, God a liar, but you can accuse him of being too merciful. I almost called this uh, sermon Scandals and Skeletons. We've all got some skeletons in our closet. Preaching about evolution, my dad said, 
my forefathers may have swung by their necks, but none of them swung by their tails. Ask me after church, I'll explain it to you. Outlaws get hung, remember? Never mind. Boy, that was a bad deal. Little becomes much when God is in the mix. This is how it's possible. You put him in the equation, a little bit becomes a whole lot. There's a whole lot of stories in the uh, Bible of, you know, the widow's might. She gave more than everybody else. The widow with just a little bit of meal. The widow with just a cruise of oil. A little as much. Uh, R.W. Shambach, Tyler, Texas, preached a sermon on that. And he called it the zero factor. His introduction was, what's stronger than God, meaner than the devil, and a lot of saints are doing it, and if they don't stop, they're going to go straight to hell. What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing's stronger than God. Nothing's meaner than the devil. And a lot of saints are doing nothing. And if they don't stop it, they're going to go straight to hell. <laughs> and he went into preaching on all these stories through the Bible of, of little things. The little boy's lunch fed 5,000 men plus women and children with, you know, five loaves and two fish. So God is able to draw straight lines with crooked sticks because he doesn't need much. When he approached Moses to lead the Israelites to freedom, Moses made all these excuses. I, 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 stu I stu stutter and I, I'm a vagabond and I'm, you know, danger for my life. And God said, what's in your hand? A stick. Throw it down. God made a snake out of the stick. The straight stick, no doubt it was straight, became crooked. <laughs> anyway, we won't belabor the point, but look at this verse. Romans 4, 17, talking about Abraham, says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This is God. He called Abraham righteous before he really was. He called him the father of many nations when he was, had no kids. Next point, the Lord has turned, he has, this is the gospel, much evil into great good. Now look at this, Romans 5, 16. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. One offense brought condemnation. One man, the first man, Adam, and his wife sinned and brought separation from God upon all their descendants. So one act of rebellion messed us up. Many offenses fixed us up. What are the many offenses? Jesus is the last Adam. He never committed one sin. 
although he was accused of blasphemy, he never did. But many sins were committed against him. The kangaroo court in the middle of the night, that was contrary to the law. Uh, putting to death an innocent man, that was contrary to law. Slander, libel, um, betrayal, abandonment. I mean, so many offenses, beating, abuse, robbery. So many things were done against him. The planet should have melted. Why? This was done, this is the gospel, to God's son. You know, I might could slap you and get away with it, but I doubt I could if I slapped your child. It puts it on a whole nother level, right? I'll turn the other cheek, but oh, no, you didn't. Here, hold my coat. So, judgment comes from one offense, but justification comes from many. This is the gospel. This is God. What's he doing? Demonstrating incredible mercy. It goes on to say, for if by one man's offense death, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ abundance of grace. He drives this point so, home so deep in this book that at one point he has to say, should we continue in sin so that grace will abound? God forbid, how shall we who died to sin continue sinning? The key to receiving the benefits of all this mercy is repenting. Abraham and Sarah repented. They got humble. Well, I didn't see them kneeling at the altar. No, repent means to change your mind, change directions. They changed. Well, I've just been too wicked. Repent, and you can receive the riches of heaven. Humility is always right for those he blesses. If God has blessed you, don't you dare take credit for it. Well, good thing I sowed that seed, or good thing I did that thing, or good thing I didn't complain that day. No, it's all because of God's mercy. Well, I did those things. Yes, you did, but it's out of mercy. God gave you the seed to give. None of us would have enough sense to get in out of the rain if he hadn't graced us by helping us. 1 Corinthians 1 says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, aren't you glad he didn't say not any, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. This is a humbling verse. Anybody here called by the Lord? It says not many of us are wise, not many of us are noble, not many of us are mighty. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are are. Kind of reverse on calling those things which be not as though they were. He's calling those things which are not 
to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. Jeremiah said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the rich man boast in his riches, or the mighty man boast in his strength, but let him who glories boast in the Lord. We used to sing that. I will boast in the Lord my God. His blessings are for those who truly repent. What I'm sharing today is called the good news. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. Stop leaning on your wisdom. Stop leaning on your strength. Stop leaning on your nobleness and your pedigree. Man, my people don't have any things in the closet. Just lean on the Lord and repent. Turn from your self-willed ways and give him your life. Look at these promises that go with the word repent. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who wants the benefits of the kingdom of heaven? Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Let him who stole steal no longer. Let him who lie, lie no more. Kind of thing he was preaching. Jesus preached the same thing. He began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're talking about receiving the benefits of the kingdom of heaven. Starts with repentance. Mark 1.15, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Believe in the gospel. When the church was born on the day of Pentecost, Peter, in response to the people having heard the good news, asked him, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Nobody's exempt from this. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Who wants to receive the remission of sins? Who wants to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost? Who wants to receive all that God has for you? It starts with repenting. Don't let someone rush you into a baptistry if you've not repented. I don't care what they say of you. If you've not repented, you're only going to get wet. Well, I tried that Christian thing. If you repent, you're going to ask to be baptized. You're going to want it. The Lord's going to put the desire in your heart. Repent, therefore, this is in Acts 3, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing, who wants times of refreshing, may come from the presence of the Lord. It starts with repenting. The times of ignorance, God overlooked. Paul told some unbelievers in Athens. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So everyone is commanded to repent. So this business of keeping score, well, I'm not as bad as him, and I'm trying to be as good as her, it's for the birds. It's not going to get you anywhere. It begins with repenting, turning from self to Christ. In Revelation, the Lord told a lukewarm church in Laodicea of Turkey, now known as Turkey, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. 
See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Who wants to fellowship with the Lord? It starts with repenting. If you'll repent, it opens the door to blessings. So we've heard that God has a perfect plan through imperfect people and he can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Little becomes much when God is in the mix. The Lord has turned much evil into great good. Humility is always right for those he blesses. And his blessings for, are for those who truly repent. What are these blessings? They're conversions. They're transformations. They're the reverse of a curse. They're double for your trouble. Now we think, you know, if, if your trouble is minus $5, God's going to give you $10. Well, it's accounting language. And if you've got a list of charges against you that can be read, uh, that's not good, right? That's the spiritual condition we are in. But if you fold that paper, if you double it over, no one can see it anymore. That's what he does for us. He doubles or he turns our situation around so no one can charge us with anything that will stick in the eyes of God. You may have a debt to pay to society. There is a thing called restitution. But in your walk with Christ, righteousness is a free gift. Look at what Jesus said when he read this in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. They were reading Isaiah. He gets up, hey, I'd like to read and he reads this, and when he's done, he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach. This is why Jesus came. Good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. And what's this appointment? To give them beauty for ashes. You got ashes, he'll give you beauty. The oil of joy for mourning. Are you mourning? He'll give you the oil of joy. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You feeling heavy today? Are you depressed? He can give you the garment of praise. He can turn the situation around, turn it on its head. And the result is that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So it's not about our worthiness. It's about his worthiness. It's about his glory. It's about his being glorified. So stop beating yourself up for your sins and repent. Stop sinning and run to the Lord and let him begin to restore your life. And you notice this morning 
is a little thing called the twos and fro's of redemption. When he redeems us, he converts us, he transforms us, he turns things around. He turns us from the awfulness of sin to the awesomeness of him. From beggarly elements to beautiful developments. From crises caused by us to Christ's cause through us. From my despair to his dominion. From the effects of wrongfulness to effective righteousness. A life that reflects the righteousness we've been given. From being fooled by the flesh to being formed by the spirit. From our gory defeats to his glorious destiny. From the horror of hell to the holiness of heaven. From ignorance to insightfulness. From judgment deserved to justice served. It is finished. He bore our sins. From killing love to kinetic kindness. From the love of the world that hurts to the love of God that heals. From our messes to his message. From no hope and no peace to new hope and knowing peace. From old ways of guilt to the one way of freedom, redemption. From the pain of regret to the payment of redemption. From quivering weakness to quickening power. From being really wrong to being really righteous. From having a shame name to receiving a new name. From tests that you failed to testimonies to tell. From an ugly past to an ultimate future. From victimization to victorious vision. From worry to worship. From the excrements of wickedness to the excellence of righteousness. From youthful lust to yielded trust. From the zoo of sin's consequences to zeal for Christ's consciousness. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for every person in this room. I pray, Lord, that they would look past their imperfections and past the imperfections of others and see that you are the great converter. You're the great transformer. You're the great savior. And Lord, you can take crookedness and make something straight. As John the Baptist proclaimed, make his paths straight. Raise up the low places and lower the high places. Lord, bring your levels to our lives in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, that we get a grasp of what the gospel means to us, Lord. It's for the believer as much as it is for the unbeliever. Help us, Lord, to embrace the truth of the gospel and to receive the benefits of the grace you have for us in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for a person here that's been away from you. I pray, Lord, they come back home today. They'd see it just as easy as, as repenting. Help them, Lord, to see the benefit of changing their community, of hanging with people that will not corrupt their habits, but people that will inspire them to move forward. Lord, I pray for your blessing upon everyone in this room, especially those that have never known you. I pray, Lord, that you would cause faith to dawn in their heart, that they would realize that history does record a man named Jesus came to earth and died and that there are stories of this resurrection. 
Lord, may they explore its ramifications. And Lord, I pray that you would grant them saving faith. In Jesus' name, amen.
let's say this is a list of charges against you or a list of charges against someone that you are annoyed by. And he gives us double for our trouble. Post that. Nobody can see anymore. Clean slate. He became sin for us that we might become his, his righteousness. Meaning, God in his perfect plan takes the imperfect us and makes us as righteous as his son. He does it. And that righteousness compels us forward so that we are motivated not by condemnation or perspiration or desperation, but by revelation and gratitude and inspiration. Yes, I want to serve him. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace that passes all understanding, that peace that is based on his conquest and not human compromise. God bless you. Go get him, tigers. You have a clean slate in Jesus. Amen. No guilt, no shame. No sin, no stain.